Don Jenkins. He may not be seated. <laughs> I've asked Don to share about Chelsea because you people keep asking me about Chelsea. And so we'll have Don share. Thank you. Um, Y'all may, may not fell asleep at the wheel on one. And as I was sharing with some others, had it been 20 seconds before, 20 seconds afterwards, she would have been off in a dream and probably would not have even been seen for hours, if ever. Uh, and as it was, she was trapped inside the automobile on the most benign part of Interstate 65. If there's a good place to have an accident, that was it. Rejoice with you and Jennifer. Seriously. All right. That is truly a, a praise report. Uh, Don got to see the automobile on his way down to the hospital, which I don't think did his heart very much good, but uh, it, it was a mess. <laughs> but we rejoice. If you would turn to Revelation chapter 21, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. Uh, be speaking about the new Jerusalem or heaven itself coming down. But naive thinking assumes that things will continue to go on 
as usual. You know, the same old, same old. Or status quo prevails. Scripture, and especially the book of Revelation, God's word to us breaks that mold. It forces us to think outside of the box. And that's always good for us. Have you seen these new doomsday programs on TV? Where they show different families who are preparing for the collapse of the economy or the political system uh, as we know it. And they're preparing for a world that, where anarchy rules. I'm not talking about simple disaster preparation, you know, where you, you put aside things to, you know, keep you a week or so in case uh, something happens. Uh, and I think we should do that kind of thing. Last year, you know, we lost electricity in April for a week. Uh, and it, it was a hardship, but it wasn't disastrous. But these doomsday families... They're stockpiling food and guns and ammunition to protect that food. And their thinking is, I'll do whatever it requires to survive. I, I often think, who would want to even survive and live in a world where I would have to shoot somebody who wanted a meal? No, thank you. I'd just soon be out of here. <laughs> you know, I hope it never comes to that kind of thing. But chapter 21 of Revelation tells us our material world, this world as we know it, is destined to change. It will change. That's the word of God. The world as we know it, the heavens and the earth, will pass away. And God will create a new heavens and a new earth, meaning the atmosphere. Now, there is the third heaven, the heaven of heavens, where God dwells, that isn't newly created, nor will it change. But the world as we know it, and the planets and etc., they will become new. And this is spoken of several times in Scripture. But heaven is spoken of in Scripture, just in the book of Revelation, 55 times heaven is spoken about. Throughout the Bible, it's 532 times that heaven is mentioned. That's a lot of mentions, by the way. In heaven, we will dwell with Abba, our Father. We will dwell with our Lord and Savior, Jesus the comfort of the Holy Spirit will be there. And it gives us reason to understand why Paul says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Eternity and the truth of eternity is a God-given hope that we as his creation enjoy. Ecclesiastes 3.11, it reads, God has set eternity in the hearts of every human being. We think eternally 
because God has put that in us to think eternally. No wonder the world is a religious place because God has put the hope, the thought of eternity in our heart. Peter, he will talk about this earth passing away, and that's in 2 Peter 3, uh, 12 through 13. Let me read it to you. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day because of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, I think we share that with Peter. I think we can say amen to that. We do look for that new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. Isaiah the prophet, he wrote about it also in Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. Isaiah writes, For behold, and he's speaking of God, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and, and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. And the psalmist, so we have Peter, we have Isaiah, and then we have the psalmist who talks about uh, the passing of this old earth like taking off an old garment or an old cloak. The Apostle Paul, who probably had a greater command of Greek, uh, which happens to be a very definitive language, the Apostle Paul, who had tremendous command of Greek, he spoke, and when he was caught up into the third heaven that was our scripture reading this morning, he said he heard things that were inexpressible, words unlawful for a man to repeat. The things Paul witnessed in the third heaven, they were so amazing that they silenced him. And Paul had a great command of the languages, and Greek was one of them. Heaven, our future home, our eternal home, cannot be described by words in any language. For it has not entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for us, his children. Now think about that. It hasn't entered into our heart. We can't even imagine how wonderful, how great, how fulfilling heaven will be. And some of us have pretty wild imaginations. I've talked to some of you. <laughs> I know I have one. But when we read our text, and we're going to read it here in a moment, John falls into telling us what heaven isn't. You know why? Because he can't describe what it is. It's beyond his description. And John, in verse 5, he's instructed to write. And so let's read verses 1 through 8, the things that John wrote. Now I saw in heaven a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. A completely new, a totally fresh heaven and earth. And it will be composed of dimensions that we're not even aware of. The latest, you know, kind of fling that the movie makers are wanting us to do is to go to these movies and put on the little 3D glasses. Experience a new dimension. And we're amazed with it. Here, here comes these critters and cars and everything right as sitting in our laps. The new heaven and the new earth will be that amazing. Because it's going to be like we have never seen or experienced. And the first thing John tells us about this new heaven and this new earth is there is no more sea. There is no more ocean. Now, for some of us, that's not a big deal. But for a person in John's day, for those living at that time, the sea, the oceans were very frightful, even considered evil. In Revelation chapter 13, the first verse there, John says, he witnesses the satanic beast rise out of the sea. In the chapter 20, a couple weeks ago, the sea gives up the dead who were in it. So you have two bad uh, descriptions of the sea right there in the last uh, few chapters of uh, Revelation. But Paul, he spoke about his missionary journeys, and he recalls one of his recollections is the perils of the sea. One of the great fears of the Apostle Paul was being shipwrecked. That was one of his great fears. Joe Foch, who pastors a Calvary in uh, Philadelphia, <laughs> every now and then he'll let it out. His big fear is to be some way tossed overboard at sea and having to swim around sharks and being consumed by sharks. <laughs> 
you really fear that? (laughs) Lance, the surfer, (laughs) maybe he fears that, but I don't don't even consider those kind of things. But uh, the sea, the oceans, are a great fear to a lot of people, especially in John's day. Our planet, our oceans cover two-thirds of the Earth's surface. Our ocean divide the continents. In the new heaven and new Earth, there will be no division by water. That is a big change, by the way. The Earth will no longer be a water-based Earth. Now, that only spells out to me the changes that are coming in God's new heaven and new earth. Verse 2, John observes our future place of worship. He talks about New Jerusalem. And he talks how New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven towards the earth. This descending heaven is not a new creation. It's where Christ has dwelled with the Father ever since he ascended to the Father. This new Jerusalem is only part of heaven. It's God's throne. It's our worship place. It's our church. It's our temple, whatever you want to call it. The new heavens and new earth are outside of new Jerusalem. And we will dwell in this new heaven and new earth And we will go in and out of the New Jerusalem to worship. One of the descriptions of the New Jerusalem is the gates that it has. Three gates on each side. The gates are known for going in and out of a city. We will go in and out of the New Jerusalem to worship. That brings to mind when, when Jesus declared, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. What a glorious place it will be. We, the saints of God, will be citizens of this new heaven. The new Jerusalem will be a place where harmonious worship, harmonious interaction by a variety of, of Christians and believers. We will interact with other believers in a good and godly way. There won't be any strife. Well, what do you do with the gifts of the Spirit? There won't be any of that kind of conversation. You know, we will be in harmony with one another. Um, We are social creatures. God has created us that way, and we will worship our God in perfect harmony with one another and in a way that God wants to be worshipped. That alone is thought-provoking. You know, you just consider that for a moment. New Jerusalem, it will not be marred. It will not be suffer from any flaw of sin. Men dwelling in harmony with each other and with our God 
in a way and in a manner that we have never done so in our lives. We have only proven, really, in our existence, in the history of man, that it's very difficult for man to get along with man. And we've totally proven that man has no ability to govern man. All governments break down and fall apart. Uh, you know, at least any that we've ever experienced have. So we cannot even govern each other in a peaceful, equitable way. But John, he goes on and he attempts to describe this beautiful image of heaven. And what he chooses to describe it with is sort of fascinating. He refers to a wedding. And he says, it's like a bride that is adorned for her husband. In John's mind, in John's life, that happens to be the most beautiful thing that he can think of. It's the most beautiful event that any groom could ever experience. For a groom to see his bride coming down the aisle, knowing that she has chosen him to be her husband, John says that is glorious. And it's the most glorious event that John can even come up with. And for me, I think that's a great description. It's a great description because it captures the emotion, the feeling, the beauty of the whole event. But our God, who has never been looked upon by mankind, for no man has seen God and lived, he will tabernacle with us his redeemed creation. Tabernacled. Coexist. Co-function. He will be with us in all ways. Adam, when he sinned in the Garden of Eden, mankind lost the most fulfilling thing that we were created for, and that was fellowship with God. We lost that, or we no longer could tabernacle with our Maker. God created us for fellowship for fellowship with him. But sin entered and broke that fellowship. In heaven, the new Jerusalem will fulfill our purpose for existence. And we will dwell again with our God. Completely, totally satisfied. That's why so many times in Scripture we read God with us. And that is to indicate a total satisfaction with our Lord. But John now, he will, he will mention some of the things that heaven is not. No tears, no death, no sorrow, no crying, no more pain. For these have all passed away. That's interesting that... John would use tears because tears are symbolic of sadness. But if you've ever been to a wedding, you know that some of the ladies will weep, will cry, 
And you ask them why? Because I'm so happy. Wait a minute. Tears are for sorrow, and here, <laughs> here we're being described as tears of joy. But normally speaking, most of us do not cry when happy. Well, some of you ladies do. But this shows, honestly, the limitations of a human being in dealing with their emotions. We cry when happy. We cry when sad. Tears of joy, tears of sorrow. John is describing tears of sorrow. And it's like when Jesus approached Mary and Martha and their brother had died, Lazarus, Jesus wept with them. Jesus wept with them knowing that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. Shows the heart of compassion our Lord had. Jesus, when he approached Jerusalem, in Luke 13, 34, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you as children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus has wanted to gather his people together for centuries, for millenniums. And Jesus will gather us, his people, as a hen would gather her chicks in the new Jerusalem. We will be gathered with our Lord. And the sad tears of sorrow, pain, and death, Jesus will wipe away. Not most of them, but each and every tear, it says, will be wiped away. Not just tears that are of deep mourning or death, but sometimes we'll cry when we're disappointed. You know, it, it dreams having been dashed. We will cry when we're sorrowful. When you're a little child, you cry from pain. I would cry today from pain if I thought it would help, you know. You ever had a kidney stone? You want to cry. Let me tell you, it doesn't help. Recently, this week in the news, and this one really bothered me, not, not too often do I get disturbed by some of the things I see in the news, but this one got me. A stepmother and the maternal grandmother of a little nine-year-old girl made her run around the house for punishment for eating a candy bar and after four hours she collapsed and died. That was very difficult for me to deal with. That kind of brutality, it just stirs something that nothing else does. And to know that one day our Lord Jesus will wipe away the tears that are shed for those kind of events. And he will wipe them away by giving us heaven. That's the Lord's way of wiping away the tears. We get to experience heaven. Tears, they're visible signs of dashed hopes and dreams.
We weep when we read about a nine-year-old girl being ran to death by her mom and grandmother. And we're deeply saddened at man's inhumanity to man. We're saddened and grieved by the hardness of a sinful heart. Our tears are a result of fallen man in a fallen society. And each of us longs for the time, for the day, when Jesus will wipe away every tear. Verse 5, John moves on. And John is instructed to write in verse 5, and he's told, for these are God's words, and they are faithful and true. John's, the words that he records are words of creation, and it's God making all things new. There's a question that arises when you hear of God making all things new, and that question is, who is God making all things new for? Who is he doing it for? Redeemed mankind. We're not left in suspense there. It's answered, redeemed mankind, you and I. God's plan for redeemed man, for saved Christians, if you will, is glorious. How glorious? It is better than God's Garden of Eden for innocent man. God's plan for the redeemed is better than God's creation of Garden of Eden for Adam. It's a better plan for the redeemed than for the innocent. Let me try to explain that. Adam was created totally innocent. Did not even know what sin was. That happens to be a glorious state of being. But you and I, as saints, as forgiven, redeemed people, we have seen, we have tasted sin. We have seen the repercussions, the penalty of sins. However, being a former sinner, being a current sinner, it makes you and I as Christians grateful for the grace of God. And that is a better state of being than to have never sinned. Because we know the effects of sin and it makes us appreciate our Lord and God more. Experiencing grace is much better than any innocent state of being. Now, we don't normally look at it that way. But consider, Adam, in his innocent state, chose to sin. He chose to sin. He chose to be separated from God. Now contrast that with, as a redeemed saint, we have chosen to accept Jesus 
in his plan of salvation. We have selected, we have chosen to align ourselves with God, with Christ. And that is a choice of good over evil. We have chosen fellowship with Christ versus separation from Christ. And that is more glorious than ever being innocent. Now we've looked at God's creation of Eden and saw that it was glorious. Adam had fellowship with God in a glorious state. But now I want you to consider this. In this new creation that God will create, he's going to create it for man who is redeemed. He's going to create it for man who had sinned and turned away from sin and accepted Christ. We will be known as overcomers. As an overcomer, you will experience all things new. And part of that all things new, it will be greater than the innocence of the Garden of Eden. That's God's promise to us. God promises to you and I a personal and up-close fellowship that only a redeemed person can experience. In studying these, you know, eight verses that we looked at here this morning, it becomes clear that the new, new Jerusalem that our Lord will bring down out of heaven after creating a new heavens and new earth, it's going to bring us joy that the likes of Paul can't even begin to describe. It's going to bring us joy that John relates to a wedding where the groom sees his bride coming down the aisle. Such joy, such fulfillment. But notice this completely new world and this new Jerusalem made available to us for us to go in and out of for fellowship with God. Here's something that I saw for the first time. This new relationship that we experience will not only bring us God's saints, it will not only be fulfilling for us and bring us great joy and happiness, but the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they too are delighted. God himself derives great pleasure by giving you and I heaven our future home, a place of future worship, God gives with great pleasure. God is pleased to give us salvation. We know that. God is pleased to call us his sons and to give us eternal life. And God is pleased that we as his children will be able to worship him in spirit and in truth, and that will be in the New Jerusalem. And there, in that phrase, there is intimacy indicated 
beyond what we can even dream of today. Our God wants to be intimate with each and every one of us, and it will bring him pleasure to be so. So we will go throughout eternity basking in the joy of knowing our God. We will want to take advantage of the opportunities to know our God in fullness and be able to worship him without any inhibitions, without any limitations. Oftentimes I envy songwriters because they can put words to song that so aptly describes my own feelings and I'm envious. I'm envious of the psalmist that can do the same thing. They can write such psalms that, you know, speak my heart to God. But in heaven, in this new heaven, new Jerusalem, we will be able to express our love and worship to God in completeness, in fullness. And we'll be able to connect with our God in dimensions unknown in today's world because it will be a new heaven and a new earth. I wish I could describe it to you. But if Paul couldn't and John couldn't and Peter couldn't, I can't either. So I simply say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It will be glorious. Let me get you to stand. We'll pray.